Good morning, Northbrook. Glad to see you all this morning. Uh, you may have noticed that John is here this morning. Um, he had asked me to preach because they were planning to go to Indianapolis for the TGC conference, um, but have not been able to do that. The paperwork that they were hoping would come through has not yet come through. So um, be praying about that this, this week, uh, that things would wrap up there and they would be able to um, uh, take care of uh, take care of things there and, and get back to, uh, to life here. You want to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. I know you're all shocked that we're still in John. Um, I'm preaching from there once again. Uh, we'll be continuing on in John um, to the next passage, beginning in verse 43 as we get started. Last time we looked at the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, which makes up the bulk of chapter four, but there's this little story at the end um, where Jesus returns to his home region of Galilee. And we'll take a look at his reception there and what John calls out as the second sign that Jesus does uh, in his gospel. About 20 years ago, in 2003, there was a book that came out, a book published by John MacArthur. Given his publishing history, that's not terribly surprising, particularly at this time, in the uh, first decade of the 2000s and in the 90s, he was publishing, on average, somewhere around four books a year. Um, he just, there was a lot of material that he put out, um, a lot of it adapted from sermons over his lengthy ministry. Uh, he was putting out a lot of books at this time, but one in particular, in 2003 was written as a response to what at that time was pretty much the height of the seeker-sensitive movement and what many had termed easy believism. It was effectively a watering down of the truth of the gospel, particularly when it comes to sin and the consequences of sin. That way of thinking tended to change the gospel message at its core to cater to its audience making, seeking at least, to make Jesus more palatable to their audience, to a world that by nature hates him. And so it was seeking to bring people to Jesus by making Jesus more appealing, making the gospel less confrontational. The goal was to make it easy to believe. That gospel didn't demand very much, if anything, of its hearers, and instead sought to meet their demands, offered a gospel that would meet their needs, and it puts man often at the center of that gospel. Now, MacArthur's book that he wrote uses the words of Jesus himself from many of the gospels to counter that idea. The gospel that Jesus himself proclaims is one that speaks of sacrifice, it speaks of cost, it speaks of denial of self, it speaks of the high cost that will come from following him. Jesus, as you look at his encounters with people, you never see him chasing after people who walk away, who don't like his message. In fact, you often see the opposite, him almost seeming to drive people away with some of his messages. We'll see that a little bit later in John's Gospel, in John chapter 6, actually, at probably the lowest point of his ministry from, a, or from an earthly perspective when he drives away thousands of people that had been flocking to him. Term it whatever you want, easy believism, the seeker-sensitive movement, 
there's elements of the prosperity gospel that fall into this camp as well. They all had similar results. A lot of churches full of shallow converts. People that were unprepared for the difficulties of life, the difficulties that can come from following Christ. And who are shocked when they encounter that cost. And many of whom would walk away from the faith that they profess. MacArthur called that book Hard to Believe, The High Cost and Infinite Value of Following Jesus. I mention that book because as we've looked at John's gospel, we've seen already how he talks extensively about two kinds of belief. He uses the same word, believe, throughout the gospel. And he uses it to refer to people who appear to have faith, but as it turns out, truly don't, as well as those who truly believe. And the context in which he uses it, the context of the stories in which he's delivering it, is how we are able to tell the difference between them. And it's kind of the whole point of this portion of his gospel. Those two kinds of beliefs, the the first is, is a superficial response to Jesus, and it's usually tied with seeing his miracles and responding to his miracles, to his displays of power. That in and of itself isn't bad, but as we see in chapter 2 of John's Gospel, which is where all this starts, it in and of itself isn't enough. In verse 23 of chapter 2, he says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. These people are described as having believed because of the miracles that they saw, but John goes on to say that Jesus knew their hearts and for his part did not entrust himself to them. That's actually the same word for believe there. Jesus did not believe in them. A large portion of the next 10 chapters of John's Gospel, from 3 through 12, is dedicated to dealing with a particular question. What does it mean to believe? What does genuine faith then look like? The stories in John's Gospel use both positive and negative examples to answer that question. Amongst the Jews, we see a lot of the negative side of it, a lot of unfaithful responses to Jesus and a lot of ultimately being driven away or rejecting what Jesus says after having been declared to believe. As we saw last time, the the Samaritan woman and the Samaritans in her village is one of the best positive examples, probably the high point of Jesus' ministry in John's gospel. And of course, all of this All of these stories, all of this discussion about belief is to serve John's overarching purpose, which I mention every time I'm up here preaching from John because it's important for us to always remember. And this is found in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, John is writing about belief 
and the nature of belief so that we as his readers would understand more fully what it truly means to believe and avoid the path of that false belief, that easy believism. Today's passage we're going to look at is no exception. Last time in John, we saw Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman and the response of both her and the people in her village and the surrounding area, that response of genuine faith, ultimately proclaiming and accepting Jesus as Messiah and declaring him as the Savior of the world. I'm going to pick up in verse 39 of chapter 4 here, the tail end of this interaction, and read through the end of the chapter. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. As we pick up here, Jesus leaves the site of arguably his greatest success for his preaching ministry, and certainly in John's gospel, and heads back to his home region in Galilee to the north. He had stayed with Samaritans for two days, which is a lengthy time, if you remember any of the background from the last time we met. Interactions between Jews and Samaritans were often not happening uh, and tense at at best. Uh, So for Jesus to stay there two days, to be welcomed there by the Samaritans and to gladly stay and continue to teach them speaks volumes of his heart for these people. But after those two days, he, re- he moves back to his home territory in Galilee. Most of John's gospel doesn't take place in Galilee. Most of it takes place in, in and around Jerusalem. Um, but the synoptics certainly spend a lot of time 
uh, with Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And he has ups and downs there. He has success and he has failures. One of the most memorable ones, though, is when he preaches at the synagogue. Stands up and reads from Isaiah, declaring that Isaiah is fulfilled in their hearing that morning, and they effectively drive him out of the synagogue and are seeking to kill him. So he didn't always have a positive reception. These are people who knew him, would have known him as he was growing up, would have known him before his ministry started, by and large. Lots of family in this region for Jesus. And so his reception there is often different than it is in Judea in the south. Verses 44 and 45 are a little complex in this Uh, in this passage. It says, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. There seems to be a contradiction there almost in what John is saying. He starts off by referencing a proverb of Jesus, one that is captured in Matthew 13, 15, after he is rejected at Nazareth, where he says that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. He has no honor, no regard in his home region of Galilee. That term homeland can also mean home, or hometown can also mean homeland. It can refer to the region as well. Yet in verse 45, it immediately says, so, and that word is often translated, therefore, the Galileans welcomed him. So he says, Jesus said that a prophet has no honor in his hometown, therefore, the Galileans welcomed him. What do we do with that? Because that seems very confusing on face value. These Galileans seem excited to have him there after what had happened in Jerusalem. They seem to be saying the opposite of what Jesus says. They seem to be welcoming him, giving him honor. Now, there's a lot of ways that people have tried to tackle this, but I believe the best explanation looks at the context in which this is being given and how John writes in general to get a satisfying answer to this. The proverb is mentioned in reference not just to Galilee as the place where Jesus comes from, but more broadly, Galilee as Jewish territory over against the Samaritan territory that he is coming from. There's this contrast between the two that John is trying to emphasize here. It's the whole reason that the, that the story about the Samaritan woman is in his gospel is to provide that contrast between the Jewish response and the Samaritan response. So Jesus is immediately coming from the Samaritan territory, and John is speaking to the contrast between the Samaritan story a reader would have just read and this Jewish story that's following. But if that contrast is the intent here, and he's intending to contrast the response of the Jews, what is the welcome that he's talking about that seems so at odds with the expected lack of honor? Well, one of the things John does in his gospel quite often is uses irony and writes with ironic statements. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. Notice the reason for their welcome. They welcomed him because they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. He's talking about the Passover. The Passover from chapter 2, where Jesus goes to Jerusalem, clears out the temple, and where that verses, those verses we read earlier were, where he had done many signs, and the people seemed to be responding to it. These Galileans were there. 
Passover was one of the pilgrimage feasts for the Jews. So all Jews were expected to come to Jerusalem for that feast. The language he uses here, where he says they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast, that language is very similar to what he uses in chapter 2. And that's exactly the point. The kind of welcome he's describing may be exuberant and excited and bear all the outward markings of honor, but underneath it is the same kind of superficial faith that he's describing in chapter 2. Indeed, many of these people are the same people that are being described in chapter 2. They were there as well. So the outward trappings of honor are there, but the true honor that Jesus deserves as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the Son of God, is not being given by these people. It becomes even more clear as the story continues. You go down to verse 48. Jesus' response to the people is, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's Jesus not entrusting himself to them. The use in that verse, you have a note in the ESV, said, both of those use are plural. Jesus is not just addressing the man who's talking to him. He's addressing the Galileans at large. This statement fundamentally serves as an indictment of them. As in other places in this gospel, the crowds are seeking another miracle. They're fascinated by the signs and wonders that Jesus does. They want to see another one. They're not there to listen to him, to hear his message. They're not there to believe in who he truly is. So, a prophet is without honor in his homeland. Therefore, the Galileans offer him a false honor. An honor that's rightly given to Jesus, but that is given for the wrong reasons. I think that's what John is doing with those two verses. But he focuses this story down, not so much on the Galileans as whole, but on this one man among them. So who is this man? Just calls him an official from the town of Capernaum. This was a Jewish official. The term used there is is, uh, used to refer to an official for a king. So this is probably someone attached with Herod's government. Herod was not actually a king. Um, but he effectively functioned as one and was thought of as one by many of the people in the region there. So this is probably someone associated with Herod's government um, in the Galilean region. He was obviously familiar with Jesus. Uh, He had likely also been at Jerusalem for the Passover. He had heard the stories beyond that, certainly. Um, He had awareness of who Jesus was. Uh, At this point, Jesus ministry in Jerusalem with all of the Jews gathered there would have spread out through the rest of, of uh, the realm of Judaism. And so everyone would have heard of him at this point. Stories would be circulating. A prophet is here. Uh, someone with power has arrived. So he was obviously familiar with him. He had heard stories about it, but he has a sick son. In fact, his son is almost dead. He's on the verge of death. This man is desperate. 
This man goes to seek Jesus out, but he's not seeking him as one who's just looking for another miracle, who's looking to see another display of power, who's looking to see, wow, look at this amazing thing that God has done. He has a very personal reason for seeking this out. His son is dying. He is desperate. He has no hope that he can see. But he hears that Jesus has come. And he's heard the stories of Jesus. Maybe he's even seen some of it in Jerusalem. And so he decides to travel from Capernaum to Cana to meet Jesus. Capernaum is on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and Cana is down to the, north, to the southwest from there, about 17 miles. 17 miles doesn't sound like much. That's a quick jaunt in the car nowadays, but that's a fairly lengthy walk for someone. That's at least a day, maybe a couple. So this is a big commitment this man is making. He knows who Jesus is, at least from his reputation and the stories circulating. He knows what, is, what he has heard or possibly seen that Jesus is capable of. But he doesn't know if Jesus is going to help him. He doesn't know if this is the answer. He is hoping. He is desperate. He has nowhere else to turn. And so he makes this lengthy journey. Maybe Jesus can do something. But this man has no other option, so he journeys to meet him. And when he gets there, he asks him to return with him to Capernaum to heal his son. Now, Jesus' response to him, as I said, isn't directed so much at this man, but, as, but more to the Galileans as a whole. The Galileans are looking for miracles. They're looking for a miracle worker, for a show, not the truth of God and the truth of who Jesus is. This becomes even more clear in chapter 6, uh, when Jesus feeds the thousands who have gathered, and this again is in the region of Galilee, then travels across the Sea of Galilee, that crowd of thousands follows after him. And what follows is the bread of life discourse. And part of that discourse is Jesus directly confronting them on the fact that they're coming after him because they want to be fed again. They're not coming because of who he is. They're not coming to listen to what he has to say. They got fed by a miracle the last time. They want to see it again. That's the kind of attitude that Jesus is speaking to here. There's a confrontation here, an indictment that Jesus offers to the people. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He's saying there, you will not listen to what I say. You will not listen to what I am saying about myself. But this man, this Jewish official from Capernaum, who traveled all the way up here, is not put off by this. He's not here for a show. He's not here because he wants to see a miracle for his own sake. He doesn't want to see a miracle for a miracle's sake. He doesn't, he's not after seeing a display of power. He's desperate to save his son. And the only hope that he can see is that maybe this man in front of him is indeed a prophet sent from God and that maybe he can indeed save his son. So he pleads a second time. Sir, come down before my child dies. This is the plea of a desperate father. This is an emotional plea. 
He doesn't care about the show or the spectacle or whatever else anyone else is searching for. He just wants his son to live. And so Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. So there you go, problem solved. Jesus said it, it's going to happen, no dilemma anymore. This man went away happy, I'm sure. I think if we take a moment to think about this, though, put ourselves in this father's shoe, think about what he's experiencing in this moment. He traveled two days to get here. His expectation was to hopefully bring Jesus back with him to Capernaum. And Jesus tells him, go, your son will live. He's two days removed from his son. He doesn't know if his son's even still alive at this point. He doesn't have any way to know. He was alive when he left. You want to talk about something hard to believe. Put yourself in this man's shoes. Jesus says, go, your son will live. He has a decision to make at this point. He's traveled two days to bring back the prophet, and he says, it will be fine. Do you continue to push for him to return? Do you try to drag him back with you? Do you continue to plead your case to not go home any empty-handed? Or do you hear what he says, and do you believe it? Do you trust when you turn around that you're not going to be returning home to a funeral? That's exactly what this man has to do. John says that he believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And that is massively significant. Because his belief isn't in Jesus' miracles. His belief isn't in Jesus' power that he's displayed. He believes what Jesus says. That's one of the biggest distinctions that John makes between true and false belief. Is what is that belief based in? We saw it with the Samaritans even that they believed because of his word, because of what he said. So he turns around and went on his way because he believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. This is the beginnings of faith for this man. This had to be a gut-wrenching moment. Can you imagine that trip home? Again, this isn't a quick jaunt across town. This is, this is a day's travel that he now has to go trusting, hoping, accepting what he has heard. There had to be second guessing. There had to be anxious waiting. The not knowing of it all had to be excruciating. Today, our modern world, we're so used to instant answers, instant communication, accessibility to nearly anything or anyone at a moment's notice. But put yourself in the the shoes of this man on his trip. Think of this trip, think of this man, think of the faith it would have required to keep moving towards home. Not knowing. Thankfully for him, though, this anxiety and the worry don't last for the entire trip home. His servants meet him somewhere in the middle. 
They likely had been dispatched as soon as it was clear that the son was healed and was recovering. And that news is shared. For this man, there's undoubtedly rejoicing, but this man wants to understand. So the first thing he asked him is, when did he get better? When did the fever leave him? And they told him, yesterday at the seventh hour. And the father knew, he connects the dots. He wants to make sure that he understands what has actually happened. And he knows now that his son was healed at the moment Jesus told him, your son will live. And so John tells us that he believed, and not only him, but all of his household. And all of his household likely was at this man's testimony. He told them, listen to what Jesus has done. So how do we know that this is genuine faith? How do we know that when John says that these people and this man believed, that it's real? How do we know that this is different than the believe of John chapter 2? Well, again, as I already pointed out, first off, notice what the man believes in. He believes in the word of Jesus. This isn't a response to witnessing a miracle. As far as he knows, at that point, no miracle has been performed. This is hearing what Jesus says and believing it to be true. true. Yes, his son is healed. That merely serves to confirm the faith that the man has already expressed. Secondly, when he hears what Jesus says, he believes and he went on his way. He responded to Jesus in obedience. Jesus said, go. And the man goes. That certainly is not an easy decision, but it is one that he makes. He turns in immediate obedience, not making more pleas for Jesus to come down with him, but begins the long journey home solely on the basis of the word of Jesus. Third, when the miracle is confirmed, His response is to confirm that truth and respond with an even deeper faith. That language of, and all his household, clues us in that this man became an evangelist. His son didn't have some mysterious, miraculous recovery. It wasn't God working in mysterious ways. No, he connected the dots. He knew why his son was alive. It was because Jesus had said that he would live. Jesus was the one who had done it, and his household that had witnessed the recovery of the son now knows its source as well. That language of, and all his household, becomes kind of a marker in Acts as well, to reference a family, a house of genuine believers. Those who are responding in faith, those who already have faith. Now this man's faith initially, in his response to Jesus, was certainly shaky. It was not a deep, full-orbed, fully understanding everything kind of faith. He knew very little. He had very little to go on. All he had heard was Jesus say, go, your son will live. He probably hadn't heard much of Jesus' message and claims at this point. He mostly knew of him from his miracles. That's undoubtedly why he sought Jesus out in the first place, was because he knew that he was a miracle worker, that he had power. But that shaky faith is at least a start. 
It was more than the wow of seeing a miracle done. More than just being impressed with seeing power at work. And it was a faith of action. Action that Jesus demanded, essentially, by making this a remote healing. Jesus did not have to lay hands on this boy. But when all the dots are connected, when all the pieces are put into place for this man, he begins to understand better and undoubtedly will investigate further. And his fascination and interest in who Jesus actually is becomes even deeper. And so this man becomes an example of a true Jewish believer, one of the few in John's gospel that he records for us. This man was told that his son would live. This is, there is no doubt that this was hard to believe. This man was a, an official, a man of some importance. Believing this would have required denying his pride, relinquishing any perceived control of the situation. Up to this point, he had been in control of journeying there and hopefully bringing this prophet back. But now he is being asked to walk away. He's being asked to trust in the words of this man that he's only just now met. Probably the first face-to-face interaction he's had with Jesus. The fact that he does it That he believes and he went on his way is the indicator that this is genuine faith. The faith of this man stands out in contrast to the belief that was called out in chapter 2 and in verse 48 here. That's the belief that misses the message of Jesus, that focuses on what he does so much that it misses who he is in the word or the message that he brings. That's the superficial belief of so many of the Jews that would ultimately fall away. And it's the superficial faith that characterizes so much of the fallout from the seeker-sensitive movement today. Faith is hard. It isn't easy. Well, it doesn't require work on our part. It's not, something, it's not something that we do. It doesn't require us to do anything. The very fact that it doesn't require anything makes it hard. Our fallen nature wants to earn salvation. We want to earn our miracle. We want to be able to say that we contributed something. But true faith has to acknowledge there is nothing that we can do. In fact, anything that we would do would only make things worse, not better. True faith, like this man, comes to Jesus in desperation. There's nowhere else to turn. There's nowhere else to go. True faith listens to what Jesus says and responds. This doesn't mean we always understand. This man certainly didn't know what he was walking home to in this situation. The disciples are a great example of this as well. Throughout John's gospel in particular, but all of the gospels capture this, they were often clueless. They did not know what was going on and what Jesus was truly saying. But they knew where they needed to be. 
Again, looking ahead to chapter 6, where Jesus has arguably his biggest ministry, failure. He goes from thousands, a crowd of 10,000 maybe, following him, down to 12 in the course of a chapter, in the course of one discourse. The massive crowds abandon him due to his hard teaching, where he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and he turns to the 12 that are left, and he says, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter is not saying there that he has any understanding of what Jesus was talking about with eating his flesh and drinking his blood. That saying is just as hard for him as it was for everybody else who walked away. But he knows who it is that said them, and that is good enough for him at the moment. That's the response of true faith. That is a faith that is hard to believe. The trials of life are where faith is put into practice, where our faith is tested. That's the word that James uses. And where those who truly believe are refined. Faith in the midst of trial is hard. Those who have an easy faith who found it easy to believe, often do not last through trials. True faith endures trials. It cries out to God for deliverance, but rests in a confident assurance of his good and sovereign hand, no matter what the outcome is. And that is hard. True faith can be shaken, absolutely. Sometimes to its very core. Just ask Peter about that when he denies Jesus three times. But that true faith, when it's shaken, doesn't stay on the easy road. It doesn't stay on the broad road. It knows that that way leads to destruction. Though boy, does sometimes does that look easier. Instead, faith makes the hard decision to fight to stay on the narrow path that leads to life. Faith is hard. But Christ Jesus is the faithful one. He is the one who fulfills all of the promises of God. And he is the one who has redeemed a people to inherit those promises. Faith endures for the joy that is set before us, just as Jesus did. Faith looks to a city, to a kingdom, to a remade heaven on earth. And that view enables us to take the harder path, to make the harder choices now, because we know what God has purchased for us. Now, I know that many of you here understand this all too well. You have felt the trials of life. You have had your faith tested. You understand what it means to have a hard faith. You've had to make hard and painful choices. You've had to choose to hope and endure despite circumstances that make no sense. 
praise God for what he has done in and through so many of you, myself included in that, as he has conformed you more and more to the image of Christ. The call of Scripture, the call of God is to persevere, to endure. Tell of what God has done for you, of his faithfulness in the midst of trials. To help all of us have a stronger and deeper faith and have our own faith strengthened in trials. But there may be some here thinking, I haven't found it terribly difficult to believe. Life is generally good. God has blessed me in pleasant ways. This really isn't resonating at all. I would have said much the same thing not all that long ago. My first statement to you would be rejoice. Don't feel bad about that. Praise God for his pleasant blessings in your life. Worship and serve him in response to the degree that God has enabled you to do so. But my second statement would be this. Prepare. Learn now of God's faithfulness. Learn now of his sovereign hand and of his tender care. Learn from your brothers and sisters around you about the often painful work of sanctification. Create a bedrock of truth now upon which your heart and your life can stand so that when trials come, when your faith is tested, and they will come, you have something upon which to stand and a firm foundation upon which to make that hard choice of faith. For everyone who would claim to be a believer, I would exhort you, as Paul does, to examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. I say that to you all. No man can ultimately judge whether anyone is a believer. I can't tell you whether your faith is hard enough. Examine yourself. The question to ask is, what or who am I trusting in for salvation? Note the present tense of that statement. What am I trusting in now? We don't trust in a decision made years ago. We don't trust in a baptism that was given to us in the past. We don't trust to anything from the past. We trust in the here and now. There is one right answer to that question. It's the Sunday school answer. Anybody got it? Jesus. Good answer. There we go. I am trusting now in the Messiah, Jesus. His sacrifice on my behalf to atone for my sins. Sometimes this, this discussion of examining yourselves comes across as a taboo thing. It's seen as questioning salvation. It's not at all what this is. I would say, and I believe that Scripture would agree, that there is nothing wrong with this kind of examination. It only serves to deepen the faith of and provide assurance for those who believe. So examine yourself. See what kind of faith you have. And finally, if there's anyone here who does not believe, you once again in John's Gospel have an example of Jesus demonstrating that he is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. The display of God's power at work in this story is phenomenal. 
this man's expectation is that Jesus is going to come home with him, lay his hands on his son or something to that effect, and he would be healed. Jesus, from 17 miles away, says, your son will live. And his son lives. The call to you is to believe and to have eternal life in his name. That is John's call to you. In Acts, it says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The truth is, is that that faith comes with a cost. It's not easy. If you think about the early church, for so many who believed, that could mean loss of property, loss of business, loss of friends, disowned from their families, loss of their freedom, being thrown in prison, and for countless many others, their very lives. The reality is that this is still the case around the world. We don't experience it much here in our Western uh, American lifestyle. But around the world, there can be enormous, tangible, and immediate costs to becoming a Christian, up to and including their very lives. Think of the majority Muslim or the Muslim-ruled countries, as well as some of the Hindu countries. Becoming a Christian can mean you are putting yourself in severe danger. It is a hard faith, a hard thing to believe. But people do believe, because that faith in Christ is worth it. Yes, the cost can be high, but the reward promised is great. Hebrews 11 is that great chapter that is, is the, the hall of faith, where the author of Hebrews walks through a litany of, of characters from scriptural history and speaks of the faith that they had and the things they were able to accomplish because of the faith that they had. They endured difficulties, sometimes a lifetime of difficulties, sometimes horrible persecution, and even speaks of those who were killed because of their faith. But they did so in faith. It wasn't an easy faith. It wasn't a faith that was based on a lifetime of ease and clear blessings from God. This faith was placed in what was to come. And he speaks of how, all, how so many of these characters didn't see the promises fulfilled. They heard the promises of God. They believed the promises of God, anchored their hope in those despite the fact that they would never see them accomplished before they died. But they knew that someday everything that God had promised would be brought to fruition. And ultimately, they would partake in that fruition with all those who would come after them. They would join together. And the call is for us to join in that long line of faithful witnesses testifying to the faithfulness of God. The gospel message is a beautiful message. But it is a message that is inherently hard to believe. There is much that has to be overcome in order for man to believe 
in this gospel message of Jesus Christ. In fact, as Jesus himself says at various places, it is impossible for man. Speaking of a rich man entering the kingdom of heaven, he says it's easier for, the camel, for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It is hard. It is impossible. And yet, God is gracious. God demands a faith, but he grants the very faith that he demands. He makes us into the kind of people that can respond, the kind of people who can make the hard decision, who can latch on to this hard faith and can willingly and gladly enter into difficulty because of the promises that he has made for his people. So my hope is this, this morning is that you see in this man, this Jewish official, some measure of your own salvation story. Approaching Jesus in desperation. Nowhere else to turn but seeing in him a hope that you had not seen before. And making the hard choice of faith to believe what he says believe who he says he is, and come to a saving knowledge of him. The glories that await us, await all those who believe with this hard faith, make this hard life and the hard decisions that must be made as part of it worth it. Praise God for his salvation. And my prayer for all of us is that we would continue to live in faithfulness to the one who has been so faithful to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for the example of this man. I thank you so much for inspiring the Apostle John, to write this gospel for us. Writing this gospel that gives us a different perspective from the other gospels. That shows us things that those don't, that those don't show us quite as clearly. Father, I pray that as we look at those who believe and those who truly believe, in these stories, that we would take the time to examine ourselves, that we would ask ourselves, which are we? I pray that you would reveal it to us, Father. I pray that you would give us the fullest measure of your blessings, the fullest measure of your spirit, that you would help us to see that and experience that more clearly. Help us to know that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Help us to be confident of the faith that we have. And Father, I pray for endurance 
life can be long and this life can be hard. But you have promised that you will be faithful. You have promised to sustain us through every trial. You've not promised to explain everything to us. But you have called us to trust in you. So help us to do that, Father. Help us to trust in your sovereign hand. Help us to trust in the love that you have displayed in Jesus' death on the cross. Help us to trust that you truly do care about us and that everything you do is by definition good. Help us to never ascribe evil to God. But to rest in the goodness of your hand as you orchestrate and use every circumstance around us so that we can be conformed into the image of Christ. Father, I pray for a faith that desires that above all else. Help us to want to be like Christ. Help us to look forward with eagerness to the day when we will finally be freed from the presence and the power of sin. There will be no more sin, no more death, no more tears, no more pain. But we will be with you and in your presence as you are. Help us to long for that. Help us to desire that. Help us to seek for that. And give us the faith that is willing to accept the cost and the consequences of following you in this life so that we can rejoice with you and with all of our brothers and sisters throughout time and around the world as we gather around your throne declaring worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Thank you for the salvation you have wrought for your people. And I pray that all of us can enter in and stand firm in that salvation here. We ask all of this in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.